Try to stand up and be strong here in Chicago and from Chicago, it's time for another edition of the Live from the Heartland show. I'm Michael James. I'm your host for this morning's show. Yeah, I'm flying solo because Katie is uh, not coming on until later on with one of our guests. So I'm going to have a very short banter. I'm going to tell you who we've got coming on. We're going to start off the show with my longtime pal, the anarchist, the publisher, the author, uh, the talk show host Peter Worby from Detroit, Michigan. Then we're going to have Don Rose, the political analyst, talking about the prospects for Democrats, talking about uh, Biden taking too many hits and not deserving some of them, and who knows what else. And then we're going to join uh, Lynn Orman, our musical producer, and she's going to tell us a little bit about her exhibit, Women in the Blues, and other things about music that she's into these days. So uh, get ready for about an hour of interesting conversation. Uh, let me just share a little bit about where this show comes from. Uh, some of you know that uh, both Katie Hogan and I were co-founders uh, and operators of the Heartland Cafe for many, many years. We sold it in 2014. Uh, the radio show started much earlier than that. We used to do it during breakfast at the Heartland. <clears throat> After we sold the restaurant, we uh, did it from the Heartland a little bit, and we also took it downtown to the WLUW Studios, WLUW Studios. So you get this every Saturday morning live on 88.7 FM and on WLUW.org. Uh, Katie and I are both working on a book about the Heartland Cafe, and I think that some of you who listen in might have stories about the Heartland uh, that you would like to share. So. My email is fatback, that's F-A-T-B-A-C-K, at AOL.com. And I got that from a guy named Jimmy Cartier, who was always eating my beans that had uh, salt pork or fatback in them. Um, so send me an email, fatback at AOL. Tell us what you remember about the Heartland Cafe, what you'd like to have on the show more. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. I'm going to share a little bit of information now um, on the COVID. A lot of people are just giving it up, not wearing a mask, kind of uh, taking it pretty easy. I don't know if that bodes well, but in cases in China and Europe, particularly in Germany, they are rising due to the spread of the BA.2 stealth Omicron variant. Uh, while numbers are falling to the lowest point since before Omicron surge in late November, experts in the US are cautiously monitoring the potential for a spike in the coming months. Well, stay tuned on that because uh, um, the COVID is not gone. We'd like to call your attention to big ad money being spent by rich Republicans supporting a potential candidate for a third nominee for governor. Um, governor Pritzker has deep pockets and appears to be keeping up. Um, we will be talking with Dom Rose later about gubernatorial candidates here in Illinois. And he will also probably talk about, and we'll call your attention to, the importance of the Supreme Court races in the June primary. We need to keep a Democratic majority on the Illinois Supreme Court. So those are a couple of uh, things coming up with elections that you're gonna wanna stay in touch with. And I got one more 
A creative donation campaign on social media used the rental app Airbnb to donate 2 million to Ukrainians in 48 hours. Donor, donators from all over the world book stays in Ukrainian homes with no intention of staying, then paid the full sum of the fee as a form of quick charity for those in besieged Ukraine without access to funds. This is good and we're really glad about it. So we're gonna take a little break and we'll be right back with our first guest, Peter Werby, all the way from Detroit, Michigan. Be right back with more Live from the Heartland. Mother, mother, there's too many of you to cry. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Marvin Gaye. What's going on? Well, what is going on? Out of Detroit. And we're going to go to Detroit now and hook up with our old pal, Peter Werby, uh, an anarchist, a uh, publication guy who put out the Fifth Estate for many, many years, still doing it, and now an author with a great new book called Summer on Fire, a Detroit novel, which I am deeply engaged in. It brings back a lot of memories. Good morning to you, Peter Worby. Michael, so good to be with you. I sent you a photograph of us in 2012, so it's been 10 years since we've seen each other. Yeah. Bad on me. I should get to Chicago. Well, I should get up there. I think I was up there a couple of times or one time seeing my kids band Twin Peaks. Uh, but I don't know if I ran into you then. I did stay at your place, I believe. Uh, you did. When there was a conference up there, which goes back even further than 2012. We go back a long, long time. time. I'll be Good. coming. Anyhow, um, first of all, let's just real quickly, I don't want to dwell on it too much, but you've always said you're an anarchist. What's your quick definition of what that is well you know the historic uh definition is just without government is that uh, you know at once people combine into a nation state and everything that goes along with it which is generally you know wars and a ruling class uh things all kind of go to hell i don't know if i need any more evidence than what's going on now uh, but it also has to do with autonomous activity, with uh, acting outside of the political arena. It doesn't mean you can't enter it, but primarily, and I know you're a big proponent of this, is self-organization in community. So now it has a lot to do, for instance, Detroit in community gardens, in independent schools, in uh, so many other ways that people aren't depending on uh, the state to provide answers or solutions to problems. You know, last week on a, this show, we had a fellow named Peter Hudis, and he has a new book he's been editing on Rosa Luxemburg. Oh, yeah. What I, you know, it was a lot of political theory and a lot of political parties in Poland and Germany and, you, you know, various places. But what I took out of that conversation with him, and people can see it at youtube.com slash Heartland Media, um, was basically, sure, it's okay to participate in elections but you also want to stick to your principles and hold them out there. Yeah. And, uh, so, you know, so I'm from still being radical, but working in the democratic party some of the time. Okay. There. I don't have any criticisms. <laughs> I, I might've, might've 20 years ago, but. Uh, uh, I, that's probably when I'm remembering when we talked about it, but anyway, yeah. one of the things that I want our, <clears throat> our listeners and our viewers to know 
is that you have been publishing the fifth estate for since 1966, I think. And yeah. tell us what the fifth estate is and how you've been able to keep the underground press spirit alive in Detroit. Whereas a lot of uh, papers, certainly the ones I was involved with, uh, Rising Up Angry, the Movement newspaper, uh, and the Heartland Journal, those are gone. Well, yeah, uh, 57 years later, uh, we're still publishing with a pretty solid uh, uh, subscriber base. And you can go to fifthestate.org, see the current edition. I'm going to do something really disastrous, which I should have done. I'm just going to reach over here and get uh, the latest issue, which this is um, the Fifth Estate uh, Anarchist Review of Books. It's And it's got a door that says, do not enter without eye protection. And uh, the, the Fifth Estate was part of the so-called underground or alternative press movement that began in the mid-1960s. And by 1970, there were 500, some people say more, regularly appearing publications uh, that had a weekly circulation of 4 million. And the only one that has remained is the Fifth Estate because of a lot of I think a lot of things unique to Detroit and the people that were involved in it. I've been, I won't take a lot of credit other than being kind of the workhorse, which, um, you know, that, that takes uh, some doing. But uh, if you think about it now, we think, oh, you know, the internet, which, you know, I use a lot. Uh, and, uh, but here, if you had an article about rising up angry at the uh, Democratic Party convention, and you go to fitthestate.org, look in the archive, see all this. In fact, you could type in Mike James, Michael James, rising up angry, see all the, um, the articles. Um, Four million copies of that could go out, you know, with one message. So in terms of messaging for the left, it was very, very powerful in terms of the impact on, on people. Where here, I mean, you have this great podcast along with how many others, right? I mean, 100,000, 500,000, I don't know. A lot. <laughs> a lot. Yeah, and I don't mean to certainly to diminish your efforts or my efforts online, but there it was really concentrated. People didn't have newspapers until, as opposed to corporations, until the mid-1960s. Let me ask you uh, real quickly, what's the, the status of the fourth estate in Detroit? You used to have some newspapers, so they weren't necessarily progressive, but you had them. What do you got left up there? Well, they still are the Detroit News and the Detroit Free Press. Uh, but, uh, you know, then uh, they are, as you can imagine, that's severely diminished, uh, mostly having to do with sports and uh, stuff. You know, they, they it's hard to keep up, obviously, with events. I mean, if you think about uh, 19 up until what up, up through the 1960s, extra, extra, third extra today. Uh, they would put out three issues in a day to, you know, if there was like a war today, uh, you know, they're, uh, you know, the, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what keeps them alive. I think they only publish three times a week anyway. I never read them. Wow. Yeah. I don't, I don't see much. I, I look at the New York times. I look at the Washington post. I look at the guardian online uh, and once in a while, the sun times, which is now owned by public radio, I think, or at least. There's a deal being made here. Really? Wow. Um, yeah. And let me uh, just some of your the people who will be watch will be watching this probably know that 
you were also uh, a talk show host for many years. I was for 46 years from 1970 to 2016. I had the longest running phone in talk show in American radio history. Keep going. <laughs> well, that's all. It was it was kind of odd. There was not another program like that. This is again is a unique Detroit feature. What uh, people say there was no other left wing, you know, uh, people I used to say I'm an anarchist, atheist, vegetarian. And on this uh, essentially rock and roll, not essentially, a rock and roll uh, station, WRIF in Detroit. And it was just a coincidence of time, you know, the period that it came up in and that it worked. There was no other station like that or no other program like that in the United States on commercial radio, which says much, much more about commercial radio than it does about me. I hosted a, a nationally syndicated show from 20, from 2000 to 2003 on a network that the UAW founded and tried to put forth as, a, um, as an alternative to right-wing radio. It lasted about three years because all the advertisers uh, ditched us. I'd be on some place in, say, San Jose, California, and the station owner would be getting calls. I'm not advertising on your station as long as you got that communist broadcasting. I said, communist? I'm much more radical than that. <laughs> well, one of the things in my book, uh, Summer on Fire, I, I didn't realize it, but there's a lot about the radio stations of the time, including CKLW and uh, one of the um, big, uh, one of the first uh, so-called underground radio stations, WABX in Detroit. But also there's 80, somebody, uh, you know, uh, Sunfrog, don't you? Andy Sunfrog Smith, no? no I don't uh, not a blues player, it sounds like it, doesn't it? But um, he counted up and he said, you've got 80 mentions of rock and roll bands and songs and groups. So he put up a Spotify uh, list at my website, Peter Werby. Uh, org or .com. You can go to either. It also, the book, Summer on Fire, has footnotes because this is a, a book of fiction, right? But it mentions and alludes to so many historic incidents and people that I thought people also ought to be aware that, um, you know, that certain things really happen. Like right at the beginning, three socialists are, are shot and one killed by an assassin, a right-wing assassin. They're different names, different place, different time, but that really happened and really happened to people that I know in 1966, although I put it in 67. And so that's in there, the real story, for instance. Well, you've jumped into the book, which is uh, the initial reason why we reconnected and decided to have you on. Um, it's really engaging, Summer on Fire, Detroit novel. And, uh, you know, it starts off with uh, those socialists being shot, and then it goes to a lot of other things that bring uh, back memories of stuff that went on not only in Detroit, but here, the rebellion in Detroit in 67, the rebellions around the country, anti-war marches, uh, police provocateurs. Tell us a little bit about your, the inspiration for your book, and how you went about putting it together, because it is deep. It has a lot, of, uh, a lot of names, a lot of people. Some are real, some are not real. Uh, and uh, the facts, I, I'm not sure what's real and what's not. Well, you know, some people say, well, I'll give you an example. A neighbor of mine read it, and, and, and it, it's 
the characters are pretty close to me and Marilyn. And someone said, well, if you didn't want people to think it was you, why did you call him Paul and Michelle? And I said, well, that's a good point. But someone, uh, there's an incident, or not an incident, a scene where uh, Paul and Michelle get on a, uh, take LSD and get on a motorcycle yeah. and, and ride. Like, and ride to the Grandy Ballroom where this, you know, this great rock and roll venue. I remember the Grandy Ballroom. Yeah. And so the, the neighbors said to me, I didn't know Marilyn could ride a motorcycle. And I said, she can't. She never did. And they said, they, they look stunned. I said, it's not an autobiography. I'm trying to, if anything, it's a biography of a generation or a, a memoir of a generation. People did that. And I could have said, uh, Paul and Michelle got in a car and drove to the um, uh, Grandy. Well, what's more interesting for fiction? Uh, there, Paul's starting to peak and he's riding this motorcycle and starting to ride like this, you know. So uh, you said the inspiration that, you know, I'm not sure what. Maybe it's just our age and we start looking back on our lives and we think, did we did we live ethically? Um, I, I would say yes. You know, I don't without you know, being arrogant about it. I mean, sometimes we think, could we have done more? Um, I think maybe, but uh, we did what we could. We did the uh, the best uh, that we could. And uh, there's there's very little, actually, I, I always say, uh, there's nothing I'm ashamed of. Um, you know, and, and someone said, that is arrogant. I, they, but people- no, that's have, good. I agree with you. That's, yeah. we did, we did good and we're still doing good. And you know, there's so much stuff being produced these days. Uh, who knows who's going to look at the past stuff. But in a novel, I think you bring the past up to the present. And at some point in this discussion, you may want to share with why what you think is relevant from the book then and now. But there's a couple of things I want to get into, too, about the book. Well, it's about war. It's about racism. <clears throat> it's about uh, injustice in the courts. Um, you know, it was. It takes place 55 years ago. Have we solved all the problems? I mean, it, you know, someone said, "Who did you write it for?" Well, the people in some ways that have. Well, the people that I contact with uh, have contact with directly are people like you that that it elicits memories. But I want a 25 year old that was born. Um, you know, or say I just did a class with this uh, Sunfrog Smith is a, a professor at a Tennessee college and everyone in his class was born in the 21st century. It's like reading a historical novel about World War Two or World War One for them. Right. But I want them to know both the history of the struggle, because we were so inspired by people that, well, the whole you know, the whole arc of, uh, of, of radical resistance and, and demand for a, a new society that goes back forever. I mean, we go back to Spartacus, but, you know, certainly where we, uh, and if I can speak for both of us, into the 19th century and the 20th century, the radicals during that period of great revolutions from what I say from 1848 to 1939, that's what I call the period of the great revolutions. And then Things didn't haven't gone so well since. Well, you know, uh, one of the things that you did talk about in the book a little bit was uh, Detroit a lot. And you talked about the, the migra migration of uh, Southern whites to Detroit, like Southern blacks, to work in the automobile plants. And you do talk about in elections, um, an overlap, uh, not an overlap, but you had uh, the, the 
the Klan in certain areas, as well as liberal Catholics led by this guy named uh, Mark Murphy. I think. Frank Murphy, Frank yeah. Murphy, yeah. He became a governor and a Supreme Court justice. Tell us a little bit about that and maybe mention a little bit about the, the Belle Isle race riot. And then okay. uh, our time will be close to being up. Okay, well, real quickly, then, I mean, Detroit has a reputation of being a very liberal city, you know, the home of the UAW, the United Auto Workers, uh, the largest NAACP chapter, and, uh, you know, where Rosa Parks uh, lived the, the end of her life and what have you. But it was also a hotbed of not only the Ku Klux Klan that actually got cheated out of in the way that Gore did, you know, through a miscount of votes. This was in the late 20s. Um, and uh, the, the liberal Catholics led by Frank Murphy really kind of cheated. The, you know, you say you don't like people being cheated out of elections. Well, you know, we, we won't go. It was also the home of the Black Legion that thought the Klan was uh, too um, uh, too uh, too mild. Wound up murdering about 30, uh, 30 people. So there's a, a dual history here of this being now, of course, an African American city predominantly. Um, but it has, a, as most cities do, has a long history of shameful racism, and but also heroic struggle uh, to overcome that. Yeah, I think that's probably true. Chicago, they always call us the most racist city, but I've always known, you know, black Polish you know, Puerto Rican, Ukrainian, I mean, a real crossing over in the city too. Uh, and I'm sure that's true in Detroit. Uh, and one of the things I wanted to say just about the book, and I mean, it was educational for me, I mean, partly writing it and researching it, but also I realized that almost all of the fictional accounts, and they're next to no nonfiction accounts, are done from what I call a white gaze, G-A-Z-E. I mean, how we as white people were impacted by this essentially black event. And, uh, you know, is either uh, most people our age, uh, Michael, they they talk about, yeah, that's when I got out of Detroit or, you know, the coloreds got went crazy. And, uh, um, you know, and they they it, it used to be such a nice city. Well, it kind of was for them to some extent, but it wasn't for black people. And it still isn't with all they talk about the renaissance of the city. There's major water shutoffs here that the United Nations has called some sort of crime. I can't remember, human rights violation. And there's thousands and thousands of home foreclosures on the horizon unless something's done. So it's a nice playground for white people to come in from the, the suburbs as a restaurant destination city and what have you. But those problems that I talk about in Summer on Fire are still there. Uh, you know, and we got a couple minutes left. What's your take on? Uh, Michigan politics, you know, we had, uh, you know, in the Trump election in 2016, Michigan went for Trump, uh, went back to Biden, but you also have uh, right wing uh, militia guys trying to kidnap the governor. You, you tend to have a lot of Democrats in high positions, both governor, uh, probably other state offices. Secretary of State, yeah, on the, the yeah, and all senators. that. But what's your take uh, on Michigan and the prospects. We're gonna have our next guest is gonna talk about elections, et cetera. But I wanna get a little bit from you on what you think we can look at. Well, since 1968, white people have uh, overwhelmingly voted for the Republican party. So it's a white Christian nationalist uh, party that has uh, the you know a lot of increasingly proto-fascist um, 
possibilities if they're not already here. I mean, we see that in the, you know, the, this uh, constant level of uh, threats of violence and anger and, you know, these inchoate uh, uh, inchoate, incoherent, really, calls for, quote, freedom. You know, these guys were mad because uh, Governor um, Whitmer uh, closed the bowling alleys, you know. So, yeah, let's kidnap and kill her, you know. Can't have that. I mean, white people have lost their minds. Yeah, they know? really have. Yeah, so that's my that's my take on it. Hey, uh, I just wanted to tell people, and I, you were probably going to do this anyways, but it's a talk show host in me, that if they want to get my book, right, they can go to either peterwerby.com. Uh, if they, uh, there's lots of places online you can get it. You can order it through your, probably your local bookstore. If not, I hate to say it, but you can get it through Amazon uh, if, you, if you want to as well. There's also an ebook of it and an audio book coming. It's a, it's a really a good read, not only for people who... Uh went through some of this stuff and who are old now uh but also <laughs> right. other people will dig it let me ask you 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 published it uh and then i think you had to reprint it again it's in its third printing now and uh, probably a fourth coming as well yeah oh uh, you did good brother and i'm going to finish this book off and i'm going to come see you in detroit and you're going to please come do to chicago and uh we'll have you back on because I like having on the Live from the Heartland show reports from our, our pals, our buddies, our comrades around the country about what's going on in their homeland at this time. And in, right. uh, Michigan is an important state. Uh, the elections in 2022 are not very far away, and we need, we need victories everywhere. Thank you, Michael. And as we used to say, and it's still we mean it today, all power to the people. All power to the people, and we say that at the end of every show. Do we'll you? Okay, today. great. I love all you, right. Peter Werby. Love you, too. Say hi to Maryland, and we'll see you. And uh, all of you comrades and brothers and sisters and friends and family out there, we'll be right back with uh, an interview with Don Rose talking about elections. You are listening to the Live from the Heartland show on WLUW 88.7. Be right back here on the left end of your dial. Preacher man, don't tell me heaven is on the earth. I know you don't know what life is really worth. It's an all that Peter is gold. Bob Marley and the Whalers. Thank you very much. And we'd like to welcome my usual co-host, uh, Katie Hogan, who is joining us for this segment of the Live from the Heartland show on uh, the 19th of March. And uh, we're bringing in our next guest, the incomparable, the one, the only, Don Rose. Good morning to both of you. Morning. Don, you've been uh, cranking out these columns every uh, Every week or so, um, I read them, and uh, sometimes I write a little note and say, hey, good one. Um, you write back, thanks. And um, the last two that I read were about uh, things might not be as dire for the Democrats as some uh, you know, talk show pundits will keep pointing out. And also, <clears throat> in the, you, you also, in the most recent one, you basically defend someone who you've been critical of and that would be President Biden. Why don't you uh, start off talking about uh, your, your defense of Biden in these difficult times? 
<clears throat> well, Biden has, uh, I, I think, made uh, a, a series of very, very, uh, uh, what should I say, correct, uh, progressive, uh, and uh, pretty straightforward uh, uh, moves. Uh, I actually, uh, you know, farther, um, far more progressive than uh, many of us expected of a guy who was basically, uh, uh, you know, uh, what I used to call a, uh, a middleweight, uh, middle of the road guy. And, uh, you know, he has uh, taken on the big issues. Uh, some people, I think, uh, on the, uh, farther to the left of me on some issues, uh, such as uh, 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 the police, he's made a very made it very clear he is not for defunding the police and uh, 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 talks a very strong police line, which is uh, uh, very wise. Uh, defunding the police is not a uh, going to be a winning issue for Democrats. And uh, um, whether I never liked the term as it was, because I think right. we need to uh, to readjust uh, things with the police, but uh, uh, not be anti-police. Uh, certainly, I'm not. Uh, and he's uh, 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 taken on the question of poverty, which uh, people have only made stabs at. And uh, uh, I can think of uh, uh, little to criticize in uh, his first round uh, that was for the uh, 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 to deal with the pandemic issues. And now uh, the uh, uh, frustrating uh, matter of uh, what was then called Build Back Better, which I never thought was a particularly good slogan. Uh, but uh, um, all of those were well-directed and uh, obviously uh, should have been passed, except for these two uh, uh, ridiculous uh, uh, so-called Democrats uh, yeah. who stop things. And uh, uh, actually, you know, if I can jump ahead. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, the, uh, one of the things that has brought uh, Biden's numbers down, uh, his, his, his favorable numbers, is uh, uh, that the Democrats don't look like they can do anything. And uh, uh, they they can't provide answers, and uh, he, he looks uh, um, uh, impotent in the face of this uh, very very uh, uh, difficult situation where the balance is fifty fifty, and he needs every single Democrat, and any any single Democrat can become uh, you know the co-president, and uh, if if we lose. Uh, in the in the midterms on that issue, or you know, if that if that is among the serious issues, we can blame it uh, very clearly on on, on Mansion and Cinema, you know, the two uh, dissenting uh, Democrats. Um, already, he's sabotaged uh, uh, very clearly uh, most of Build Back Better. We may get some pieces of that passed. I think it's important that we do. Uh, I think the uh, progressive side made a mistake in uh, denigrating uh, 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 the infrastructure legislation. 
that infrastructure legislation under any other uh, circumstance would have been considered a major triumph that uh, somebody could run for reelection on. Unfortunately, uh, uh, events overtook, uh, you know, we had this very unfortunate uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Uh, it went as well as it ever could, uh, but it looked very, very bad. And uh, uh, Biden gets the blame for incompetence there when it was actually, uh, <laughs> uh, compared to what was needed was a very competent execution. Uh, it had to be rough at the edges. It, it, there was no way of pulling out of Afghanistan without having uh, uh, all those uh, peripheral problems. So uh, I, I, I defend him on, so, on, Dan, on most issues. It seems to me that um, what you just described, and and it goes also to the the big lie about the the election last November is that there is a real lack of ability in the American public to recognize competence as opposed to incompetence. We just had the most fair election ever held in our history with the most people participating. Mr. Trump proved that himself by questioning the results in so many states, right? Which meant they had to prove that their results were real, which meant that it was the best elect most least uh, uh, fraudulent election ever held in our history. And yet we have this wide swath of Americans walking around, you know, hear no evil, see no evil. They don't know what's going on. They're not recognizing Biden's head down, get the work done approach like that you just described, very competent in many ways, simply just doing the job as opposed to getting involved in peripherals. And yet the American public seems clueless well you can uh, you, you can you uh, that? put that to the uh, or, or... you can ascribe ahead, that to the level of competence in the american public <laughs> you know we, we have a very very divided society yeah. and uh, a, a significant portion of that is uh, uh, is blinded by the non-reality of, uh, uh, of of their leadership I mean, we, we, we've had examples of this going back in my age, to my period to the McCarthy times, uh, uh, the Joe yeah. McCarthy, not Gene. And uh, 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 at one time we were divided over the Soviet Union, uh, which was at least a legitimate ideological uh, um, argument. Yeah. Uh, but uh, here we've got, uh, uh, we're going into our own uh, authoritarian end. And uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, we, we get down to it, the bottom line is race and the other. And the people who want to believe, uh, who want to find fault, who want to believe that the election was stolen, uh, in their hearts, in a way, they think the election really was stolen because uh, the, the 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 good white Americans of another era uh, that you know the mythological uh, um, uh, uh, era of the 50s or the 40s or whenever uh, these people uh, genuinely feel they are being displaced by uh, African Americans, Latinx, uh, 
and, and anybody different from themselves. They don't like the fact that whites are soon to be a minority. You know, I, I Katie's going to yeah. take us uh, to some more local elections, but I want to stick with 2022. Uh, first of all, let me ask, do you think that Biden's handling of the uh, Ukraine situation may be helpful for him? And what is your take on 2022? Because your the piece you wrote basically said it doesn't look as bad for Democrats as we've been told. Okay, uh, 2022, <clears throat> historically, and based on the numbers that we see now, would suggest that the Democrats will lose uh, uh, at least the House. Uh, there's a little different uh, dynamic going on in the Senate, but they could lose the Senate or they could strengthen in the Senate at the same time as they lose the House, interestingly enough. Um, we can only afford to lose uh, six seats. Um, history says ordinarily we would lose 20 to 30, even in, 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 in a relatively good year. Now, what is going on to make it different? We are getting a little bit, you know, Biden's numbers are down in the low 40s. And um, since the uh, uh, State of the Union speech and a rallying around uh, the flag, which has happened uh, around Ukraine, his numbers have started to go up. Uh, he's still slightly underwater. Uh, and I wouldn't worry about the fine numbers, but, uh, you know, he, he's uh, uh, gained back uh, at least half of what he lost. And he looks to be uh, rising because people are agreeing with him on, uh, uh, on the Ukraine. Uh, um, people's, there may be some people who are even uh, uh, want a more vigorous reaction are ready to start the war, but I, <laughs> that's not the minority, start World War III. But that's not the thing. So he is gaining there. Uh, the pandemic is uh, declining substantially. And unless we wind up with another horrible variant, um, I think he will wind up, um, you know, in another couple of months getting credit for helping uh, reduce the problems there. Those are two of the big, big things. What is still going against him very strongly is inflation, which makes uh, which is due to the pandemic and uh, due to uh, what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, but he gets the blame for it because he's the guy whose face they see on television and uh, his face they see when they uh, are paying five, six bucks at the gas tank. Now, if we can get past that, the economy is otherwise very good. And this is the most frustrating thing of all, is that the economy, if you base it on almost every other metric, uh, job creation, uh, wage increases, uh, um, uh, low, low unemployment, it's at, you know, uh, near an all time low. Uh, but the gains of that, the gains of the job increases and of, uh, um, uh, the wage increases have been obviated by inflation. So that's, that's I, I think, going to be the final fulcrum. But things are moving 
slightly in our direction. I mean, we, 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 we're bounced off the bottom and we see the light ahead. Now, is it going to uh, all take place within the next six months? Where we have what, uh, approximately nine months um, or seven, I guess seven months till, till the, the election. Uh, it's a race against time. It can be screwed up badly again by mansion and cinema. It can be uh, screwed up by uh, nobody's fault, uh, another variant that gives us a surge in the pandemic. But all I can say is uh, from a very bleak outlook uh, early this year, we are, we, we see what I call glimmers of hope. Uh, is it a prediction we'll make it? No, it's a prediction that we can make it. Uh, and it's obviously uh, to be hoped, um, so but it's tough. Okay, let's shift to uh, more local. Katie, you've got some questions. Yes, I just um, I just got the message that my internet is un unstable, so I'm sorry if that happens. Um, so candidates filed their petitions here this week in our first ever held in June primary coming up. Um, which uh, to you are the important uh, races <clears throat> to win? We've got the, um, and which are important races that voters should get up to speed on? There's filling the large shoes of Jesse White. There's the Supreme Court races, the county positions, including Fritz Kage, the County Board of Review. Give us uh, just a, a general look-see on the local races as you see it uh, that are uh, matching up right now. Well, the, the obvious, uh, obviously right now, the most important races are uh, to maintain uh, all the democratic seats that we've got and to uh, uh, pick up the new ones that have been um, well gerrymandered in our favor. Um, uh, I don't have uh, uh, personal favorites here uh, uh, to talk about yet. Um, I, I would say almost anybody running, you know, who is in the running for uh, the new Latino oriented seat uh, will, will serve well. Uh, I, as I look at the two uh, candidates a little better, um, I may, I may uh, uh, lean in, in, in a direction, but uh, I, I'm mostly concerned about uh, the, the US Senate. The Secretary of State, uh, uh, Giannullius, who seems to be the favorite, uh, has an aura of corruption about him uh, from the last time, and he was one of the few times uh, a Democrat lost a Senate seat, lost a race for the Senate, was because of the era of corruption hanging around Giannullius. Um, I don't think he'll be a bad Secretary of State. He's a very ambitious guy. Um, I don't think he's an outright crook, but I am concerned uh, that if he is the candidate, um, we could lose that seat. Um, progressive, progressive groups have all been endorsing uh, Anna Valencia. What do you think about that? Well, it's an alternative. No, uh, it's, they've been split. Uh, uh, um, mm -hmm. You know, the Bernie Sanders group uh, uh, um, uh, has endorsed Janulius. I don't know why, but um, uh, my, my concern about him is not so much 
uh, how well he'll perform in office uh, or Valencia, you know, uh, it's hard to be a bad secretary of state. Let's face it. You've got, you've got a, uh, um, a very, very popular job, a popular thing to do. And, uh, uh, except when we had, you know, Paul Powell as a crook putting money in shoeboxes, uh, the job has been well administered, uh, unless you turn crooked. I don't. I don't think we'll see that. Um, but I, I am concerned that Janulius might lose in a year where um, I think the Democrats statewide uh, will probably uh, not fare quite as well. I think we'll carry the se the seats that we're looking for, uh, but uh, because of the uh, uh, um, Madigan episode and. Uh, uh, you know, the final uh, uh, indictment there. Uh, I think it's gonna cost the Democrats votes at the edges. Uh, and the Secretary of State seat is the one that I can see us losing. Um, you know, we got about two minutes left. I wanna get your uh, take on uh, how's the mayor doing? You know, she PO'd the police officers and the CTU at the same time. Uh, any take on Preckwinkle and the governor's race? Real quick on them. Uh, I think the governor's race will be uh, closer than expected because of the corruption issue. And I think uh, uh, Lightfoot has been weakened substantially. She's offended uh, just about every group you can imagine, uh, her own friends, her enemies. She's made bigger enemies. Um, but I wouldn't quite write her off yet yeah. because uh, 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 her opposition is so diverse that they're going to kill each other off. So I think, I, think, I think she'll probably get into the runoff and then it happens. Then it, it, we, we see whether she's got um, an extreme left or an extreme right person against her uh, because there's nobody in the middle to take her. Okay, Don, I think we're running out of time. It's really great to have you on. I was just getting started. What is I this? know, I know. Hey, uh, what about what about the uh, Supreme Court race? How how do we get voters uh, knowing about that? That's fairly important in the two districts that do not include Cook County, um, where there are two races. You know what I'm talking about, yeah. Don? Yeah, uh, I, I, I think um, th yeah. there's still okay. enough firepower. It's, uh, they've been redistricted sufficiently so that I think there's still enough firepower for the Democrats to hold those. But uh, uh, you know, in a year where okay. corruption is gonna be up there again, uh, there's always a question mark. Well, it's always great having you on the show. Um, we're gonna have you back within uh, the next three or four months because there's a lot of election stuff going on. And uh, you have a wonderful day and we'll talk to you real soon. Great, thank you much. Okay, and we'll be right back with more Live from the Heartland here on the left end of the dial. Don't go anywhere. We're going to bring Lynn Orman, our music producer, on, and she's going to tell us about the exhibit, Women in the Blues, that you may want to see while you still can. Be right uh -huh. back. When I was a little girl, only 12 years old. So my mama told me the 
from the heartland here for March 19th, uh, the week of March 19th. And uh, a lot of you have heard great music on this show over and over, uh, performances live as well as recorded. And the person who makes that happen a lot of the time is our music producer, Lynn Orman, who now you can see in person. Hello, Lynn, how are you today? Hi, Michael. Yeah, I've, you know, I like being behind the scenes. I'm not always the, uh, the person in front of the camera, but it's great to see you. And it's great to be here. And I miss you guys. I miss you a lot. Well, it won't be long till we'll see you in person, but you've got, you've had this show going around for a while and yeah. we've talked about it before. It's called Women in the Blues. Women and, of, uh, of the Blues. Women of the Blues. And it is International Women's Month. So it's a great uh, time to have you on talking about the status of the exhibit. Uh, fill us in. Where is it now? Where will it be? And what is it? Well, you know what? It was from, as a photographer, you'll know, and I really consider myself more of a photojournalist than I do a, a photographer because I'm always elbow to elbow in the in the pits with uh, people with really large lenses and here oh, I yeah, am my, <laughs> my small little Nikon but um over right yeah well you know this I'll, always this always works whereas the other cameras don't always work. it's it's kind of very very true and there's some great cameras in these telephones but um, you know, over the years from Chicago to Mississippi to Memphis, um, I have always been elbow to elbow with a lot of amazing photographers. And through the years, um, probably about 15 years now, um, I've been shooting, you know, the stages, not only women, but men as well, but also, you know, noticed in that journey that the women were not getting the props like the men were. I mean, if you were gonna, you know, and as a radio DJ as well, I can I can attest to that. So um, I started to do a little more delving into that and I ended up on the uh, board of directors of the Coco Taylor Foundation. And um, but through that, just learned so much more about Coco and her inspirations and, um, you know, how much of an inspiration she was to women internationally around the world. And so this sort of in the beginning stages of it really was my um, my heartfelt gift to Coco Taylor. So Coco Taylor's in the exhibit. Who else is in the exhibit? She is. And, you know, that, that's been very difficult because I've had to choose from different photographers because obviously many photographers from all over the all over the world have shot you know Coco Taylor as well as the other women so Coco the photo the photo featured in this show specifically right now it's scaled down to only 18 uh, photos from about seven photographers and we opened it in February at the Cliff Dwellers Social Club which is across from the Art Institute it's a it's a private sort of arts clubs so it's not open to the public but there are a lot of um they do a lot of events and i am happy to meet anybody there that would like to join me to see the exhibit or come for lunch since i am 
there through the end of April. And I would love you to come. I'd love Katie to come and see the exhibit. Do you so, want to put it out publicly on uh, on the air? Who should come? How to contact you if they want to come? Absolutely, absolutely. Give us, give us an email. You can uh, contact me at orman o r m a n music at gmail.com. You could also go to the site, which is womenoftheblues.com, and there you'll see a um, kind of my my one page of photographers there's now over 25 photographers that are featured and i i actually have michael 100 photos of blues women and these are all and it it is um what i what i like to say is it's uh documenting the past and celebrating the future so you'll have coco taylor next to a young melody angel you know so the artists that have been inspired have, um, you know, inspired these young artists as well. And, and Shamika Copeland, Mavis Staples, uh, Dietra Farr, Demetria Taylor. It's really cool. I love, I just, I love it. Are any of the photographs taken by women photographers? Yes, they are. And that, okay. <laughs> that is, what, and, and I have to be honest, and I am actually, um, looking for more women photographers and especially uh, women photographers of color. So if you are out there and you're listening to um, this program, I would love to see your work. I would love you to contact me and let me know because dominated, it's dominated by men as far as photographers go, but there are some incredible women out there like Jennifer Noble, who has a new book out actually called uh, 50 women in the blues and now uh, tell us the website one more time because that's it's important women of of the blues.com or dot org okay great now uh before we go i want to uh ask you uh you always impress me how no matter how you say you feel and maybe you're tired or you've got some health issues going on you're still out in the world with your picture getting taken with musicians and politicians. I mean, you got a, a remarkable energy. And I just wondered if in your traveling around both the city, the suburbs, the country, even the world, what have you seen lately that you want to share and encourage other people to be aware of? Wow. Okay, there is something and this really doesn't well, yeah, maybe it does have to do with uh, women of the blues, but um, obviously um, musicians coming together for the Ukraine, for Ukraine, uh, Ukraine. And um, there is a studio in Chicago that just produced a song called We Sing for Ukraine, which includes Joni Pilato, uh, Lynn Jordan, Nicholas Tremulous, a lot, a lot of the artists that we have had on our show, right. Jeff Morrow, and an artist that came here uh, two weeks ago um, came a refugee from Ukraine and she is singing lead vocals on this and it is quite an anthem. It's a beautiful song and it's called We Sing for Ukraine and it's on YouTube. And it really touched my heart. I mean, it's just an absolute beautiful song. Lynn Orman, you're the greatest. And I uh, I look forward to talking to you in the next day or so to find out what musical entertainment we're going to have on the show next week and the week after. Uh, well, I know next week uh, 
we got Kristen Lambs coming on and she has written a musical about Jane Addams and uh, the involvement of, of Kristen's own family with Jane Addams. And we look forward to that. And you'll be booking plenty of other music for us. I do want to say I am, one of the things that I am doing is I'm putting together a show that's called, it's, um, it's old school meets new school, women of the blues. So I've got like Mary Lane and then Demetria Taylor and Wynn Knoll and some of the, the legends that are still here, God bless them on earth. We just lost Barbara Morrison two days ago. Um, you know, Mavis Staples teaming up with Bonnie Raitt. So I think that's a really great and important thing to do. And we're going to have a couple of concerts coming up um, in June. Lynn Arman, thanks so much for coming on Live from the Heartland. Michael, it's a Talk pleasure. Talk to you real soon. Thank you. Okay, we only got a minute or two left, and I'm going to uh, go to a little sports report. Uh, we are in the throes of March Madness. There have been some exciting games already. Um, a little college called St. Peter's knocked off Kentucky yesterday. Uh, more games to come for the next week or two. Uh, <clears throat> also, baseball is back. And those of you who may have uh, tuned in yesterday saw that the White Sox did defeat the Cubs in the first uh, spring training game. And on a sadder note, uh, Brittany Grenier of the Women's National Basketball Association, uh, a hall, future Hall of Famer, uh, and probably one of the best players in the women's basketball NBA. Uh, she was busted in the Soviet, in Russia uh, with hash oil. Now she plays for a team over there that pays her a lot more money than she makes here in the States. It's owned by an oligarch. Uh, the latest news we have is that she is going to be held at least until May 19th, which is after the WNBA starts. And um, just to remind you, Colin Kaepernick, who began uh, taking the knee in protest of police brutality, uh, still doesn't have a job. And in memoriam, uh, in case you missed last week's show, uh, if you go to youtube.com slash Heartland Media and go to uh, videos, uh, or if you just go to uh, that site and type in uh, Dennis Cunningham, uh, you will find our interview with Flint Taylor and Michael Deutsch about our late great friend Dennis Cunningham, the people's lawyer who passed away. So for 25 years, we've been bringing you the Live from the Heartland show. Uh, sometimes it's called Heartland at Home while we are not in the studios, uh, which may happen again soon. We stream every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 Central Time on WLUW.org. You can get us at 88.7 FM. Also good to listen to for other shows, including Bob Maravich, who comes up after us. And you can find us on Spotify and Google Podcasts and Can TV, usually on Channel 27. Our thanks to Katie Hogan, Emilio Davis, Lynn Orman-Weiss, Gwen Brown, and Luis Mejia-Arens. And I am Michael James, and I look forward to seeing you next week with more Live from the Heartland. So, do good in the world, because the world needs all the good that you do, that I do, that we all do together. All power to the people. Have a great week. See you next week. I was taught I'm 
Oh,